Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, people of God. The Lord is with you. Joe Delaney would not consider himself a believer. He, he wasn't even sure there was a God. He wasn't raised going to church. He uh, didn't have much exposure to religion of any sort. And one hot, humid July day in Cincinnati, he was in the backyard playing catch with his eight-year-old son, Jared. They were throwing the ball back and forth, and they were talking about all kinds of things, the, how the Cincinnati Reds were doing, and about Jared's school, and about things going on in his life, and some of his friends, and back and forth. And then there was a period of silence as they tossed the ball back and forth, and Jared broke it with a question that really shook his dad. He said, Dad, is there a God? And Joe said that at that moment, he felt like he had moved from the backyard uh, sandlot game to the major leagues. He suddenly had to give an answer that he had not deeply thought about, and he didn't know whether to answer, to keep quiet. He said it was like losing a ball in the sun, and you don't know whether to go forward or back or stay where you are. He was really kind of paralyzed. And finally, he decided he would opt for honesty. And he said to his little boy, I don't know, Jared. Jared wasn't put off by his dad's agnosticism. He started probing a little deeper. And so he said, Dad, if there is a God, how would you know him? And uh, Joe said, I really have no idea, Jared. I only went to church a couple of times in my whole life, and I haven't thought a lot about that kind of stuff, and I really don't know a lot about those kinds of things. And they went back and forth, throwing the ball, and suddenly Jared stopped and threw his glove and the ball down and said, I'll be right back, Dad. And he ran into the house and came back with this silver mylar balloon inflated with helium that he'd gotten at the circus a couple of days before, and a little index card and a pen, and he knelt down on the ground and started writing. And his dad said, Jared, what are you doing? He said, I'm sending a prayer to God, airmail. And uh, before his dad could protest, Jared wrote, Dear God, if you are real and if you are there, send people who know you to dad and me. Joe kept his mouth shut and uh, watched as Jared released the balloon and it went up into the blue sky and kind of disappeared in the distance. Paul wrote to his friends in Philippi, these words in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and arguing so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. 
It is by holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a libation, a drink offering, over the sacrifice and offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And in the same way, you also must be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is urging his friends in Philippi to live in such a way with God and with each other that they develop a testimony to the world, what might be called a testimony of contrast, where they stand out from the darkness of the world like stars in the night. This testimony is not a holier-than-thou kind of morality, which is the way that I think many Christians in our culture for many decades have thought they needed to do it. The way we stand out from our world is being odd for God or um, condemning the world's behavior or any one of a number of other things that try to set ourselves apart from the world around us. And that's not what Paul is calling them to do. He's calling them to live a, a life, a testimony of contrast, like stars against the dark night. That life stands out against this crooked and perverse generation in which it's lived out, he says in verse 15 and 16. And that's not only called to contrast itself with the darkness of this world, it's called to do what light does in the darkness, and that is to transform the darkness into light. In Ephesians 5, 6, Paul had told his friends in Ephesus that they were children of the light. They used to be part of the darkness, but now they are no longer. They are now children of the light, and they needed to live as children of the light to have their influence in the world. Jesus had said that you are the, the light of the world, he said to his disciples. And nobody lights a, a lamp or a candle and puts it under a bushel or a, a jug and hides the light. Rather, the light is set forth so that it can shine and penetrate the darkness and make a difference in the world. Paul is calling his friends here to live toward a testimony of contrast. How does a church, how do we as individual believers in Christ develop a testimony of contrast? How do we effectively stand out against the world? Paul's words here in this paragraph or so are really helpful in understanding something about that. And it's, it's more simple than we might imagine, although it's difficult to live out. We're urged to develop a, a testimony of contrast with the world in one way by using words regularly that give life by using words that give life. The route to the transformation of our lives, that road, that pathway of transformation runs right through our heart, at the core of our being, our will, our spirit, the scripture calls it, our inner person. That's the route to transformation is from the inside out. And how do we know it's happening? How do we know that our life is changing anyway? One way of knowing that is by listening to our own words. Uh, because what we say, how we say it, and what we talk about reveals what's going on on the inside. Jesus had said this. He taught it to us in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 33. He said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. The tree is known by its fruit. What's on the inside shows up in the fruit on the outside. You brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes, he said to the Pharisees. How can you speak good things when you are evil? 
For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person brings good things out of a good treasure, and the evil person brings evil things out of an evil treasure. I tell you this, on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word you utter, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus said the heart reveals itself in the way the mouth speaks. We talk about what's in our heart. We express the nature of the heart through the way we speak to one another, the things we say, the things we talk about. Our words reveal the heart. That's Jesus who said that. Gentle hearts speak gentle words. Kind hearts speak kind words. Content hearts speak grateful Words, Joyful hearts speak joyful words. And in this passage, Paul addresses two behaviors that need to be addressed in order for us to be developing a testimony that contrasts with the world about us. He says, in, do all things without murmuring and do all things without arguing. When he says do all things without Murmuring. He uses a really ugly word in Greek. It's found in Acts chapter 6 when uh, the widows there among the, the Greeks were being neglected in the distribution of food in that early Jerusalem church. Uh, Luke telling that story says, There arose among them a gongusmos. Isn't that an ugly word? A, a, a grumbling, a complaining. A murmuring, that's the word Paul uses here. Do everything without a gongusmas. Uh, do everything without complaining, without murmuring. Back in ancient Israel, one of the sins that, that people in the wilderness found themselves committing regularly that they inter as they interacted with God was they murmured against God. They murmured against Moses. They complained. Things weren't fitting there. So Paul says, if you want to stand out from the world... Do all things without murmuring, without complaining. And he says, do all things without arguing. Grumbling never made anyone more like Christ, did it? Can you find a passage in the New Testament in any of the four Gospels where Jesus was complaining and murmuring? It never made us. It, grumbling is a preoccupation with our own comfort. That's what it is. It's a demanding posture that we take that says, I want things my way. And when they're not my way, we complain and we grumble. Paul said, you want to stand out from the world? Stop that. Learn not to grumble. And arguing never made anyone more like Christ. It's a preoccupation with my own preferences, my own opinions, my own wants, my own need to be right. And so we argue until the other person uh, agrees that we're right. And it never made anyone more like Christ. So Paul says do everything without murmuring, without arguing. He's calling us to live with a different set of questions than the ones being asked by the world around us. Our world is preoccupied with its own comfort its own agenda, its own self-interest, its own protection, defending its own turf. That's what preoccupies the world around us. And Paul said, you want to stand out as stars against a dark background? Do everything without arguing and complaining because those words indicate what's going on in the heart. 
It's everywhere. It's in the political confusion of our nation as a whole, but it's in our communities and our workplaces and our families, our homes, that arguing, complaining, preoccupation with our own comfort, preoccupation with our own agenda and the need to be right. It permeates everything. And Paul says, why don't you just let go of that and shine like stars against the darkness? When we join in with that behavior, with our own complaints and our own arguments, we blend into the world perfectly. We become just like it. We bow to its agenda and we adopt its ways. I want you to look at this photograph I took a few years ago. You know what there's a photograph of? It's taken of, it's the bark of an oak tree. Do you see the moth in the middle of it? Maybe this helps a little bit. That moth has the ability to blend in almost perfectly against the background of that old oak tree. And when we murmur and complain, we become camouflaged and we dis- our Christian testimony disappears as it blends in with the world about it. Our distinctiveness cannot be discerned. We look and sound just like the world around us that does not know Christ and we lose our testimony to it. Paul said, or Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt could somehow lose its saltiness, it would be useless. And when Christians blend in to the rest of the world by living with the same behaviors and the same agenda, rather than something distinctive, we are salt that's lost its saltiness. Paul's challenging us to pay attention to our words and to our behavior because our spiritual destiny depends on this. We are destined in God's plan to be made into the image of Christ, to become Christ-like, to become spiritually mature. What he says here, blameless, innocent, children of God without blemish. And when we learn to live without demanding our own comfort and without insisting on our own preferences, then God uses that to change us, and it shows up in our words. We learn to live like Christ. He had said just a few verses earlier in the passage we looked at last week, let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, he had said. And as a result, when we start living that way, we come out of hiding. You've seen these photographs this week of coming back from the James Webb Telescope, this beautiful picture of the grandeur of God's creation. Well, it is also a grand expression of the grace and goodness and power of God when His children, when you and I, stand out like stars against the darkness of the universe, uh, the darkness of our world. What would be the impact, do you think? on our hearts, the way we are inside. If we went a whole week without ever arguing or complaining, what if we did it for a month? I mean, none. What, what if we did it for a year? What would be the impact on the kind of person we're becoming if we let go of our own need for our comfort, need for our own preferences, and learn to live without grumbling or complaining? When our words give life, then we stand out against a world whose words are constantly taking others down. So that's one thing. Listen to our words and see if we can learn to let words be life-giving. 
There's another thing he recommends here as he's calling his friends to stand out with a testimony of contrast. He said, listen to your calling to Christ-likeness. He said, you've always obeyed me when I was there. And I, that's good. You've listened to my teaching and you've done what I said, but now I'm absent from you. And much more, I, I pray that you will listen to my words and do what I said. Because he said, you have to work out your own salvation. He doesn't mean by that you have to work for your own salvation. Uh, it is working it out like a mathematician works out a problem and brings it to its conclusion. To work out our salvation is to do those things that bring what God has done in grace through Jesus Christ to its full conclusion in our life, like working out a math problem. And you work it out, he said, it is God who works in you, both to will, that is to give you the desire to become like Christ, and to accomplish God's good purpose in you. But we cooperate with God in that. We work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but God is at work in us, and he is seeking for us to become, he says, children of light. God has in mind for us to become like Christ, Christ-like. That doesn't mean we become divine. It means we become fully human. We become what God intended human beings to be from the very beginning. In the biblical story, there are only three, I guess, fully human beings. In the early chapters of Genesis, there's the story of Adam and Eve, and at the beginning, they are fully human. They are the way God created humans to be until they separate themselves from relationship with him. And Jesus Christ, whom the scripture calls the second Adam, comes along and he demonstrates for us with his life what it was that God intends human life to look like. When we watch Jesus interact with his enemies, when we watch him interact with his friends, when we listen to the way he responds to people, when we hear his words of compassion toward those whose lives are broken, what we are listening to is the way God intends human beings to live. And you and I are not fully human. You've never known a fully human being. We're all seconds. We're, we're marred. We're broken. But Christ coming into our world, dying for our sins, being raised by the power of God, pouring out his spirit upon us and calling us together in the church is part of God's plan to reform our hearts, to change us from the inside out, to reshape us into his children who bear his image fully, who are fully human. Now, so you read that a lot in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 13, as Paul describes what love is like, love is patient, kind, and on. Or, or Galatians chapter 5, uh, verses 14 and following, where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, self-control, faithfulness. Those things are not just beautiful passages to be framed and stuck on a wall somewhere. This is actually the way God wants us to learn to live. He actually wants us to become the kind of people who automatically respond in that way to one another and even to our enemies. Paul says in Colossians 1.28, it is Christ whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. And in verse 15 of the passage in second in Philippians 2, Paul says this to his friends. Here's your destiny. This is what God wants. So that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. 
He says in verse 16 that it's by holding fast the word of life, this message about God's giving us new life. It's by holding fast this that I know that I've not wasted my life investing in you all. The testimony of contrast, the church standing out distinctively against the world is when it holds fast this word of life, this message of hope, and has lives that validate it. When we lose sight of what it is that God intends for us, that he intends for us Christ-likeness, we tend to fall back into our complaining and our arguing and our dissatisfaction about the process, like the clay arguing against the potter for the shape that he's making it. It's, it's not rational. Rather, it's better if the clay becomes pliant in the hands of the potter. And, and so with us. Don't lose sight of your calling to Christ-likeness. If you want to be distinctive from the world, then that's the way we do it. We don't do it by our politics. We don't do it by our arguments. We don't do it by our condemnation of others. We do it by moving toward Christ-likeness, the mark of life in Christ. What God wants for us is full humanity, and he's capable of using everything in our lives, every circumstance, every relationship, to shape us toward that further and further. The trials of our life, the ordinary events of our life, the practices that we take up as Christians of prayer and worship, all of these things are tools, instruments in God's hands to shape us toward Christ-likeness. And that's what he's working toward. That's working out our own salvation. But God creates the desire for that in our heart, and God provides the power to make that happen. When we keep in mind what God wants for us, we stand out in contrast to the world. But there's another piece to this about what causes us to have a testimony of contrast, and that is we stand out from the world when we lean into, together and individually, when we lean into service that costs us something, something we don't necessarily get something back from sacrificial service. Paul says in verse 17, even, even if I am being poured out as a libation over the sacrifice and the offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And in the same way, you must be glad and rejoice with me. He compares the life he's been living in service to a drink offering or a libation of wine or oil or water that might be poured out on the altar until it's all gone. My life is being poured out on your faith, on the work that God is doing among you. And even if it is, even if I die here in prison and my cup is emptied out in this process, I rejoice and I want you to rejoice with me because life in Christ is life lived in service. It's lived in a life of pouring ourselves out for the sake of the gospel. And he's calling the Philippians to do the same thing, to take their eyes off themselves and place their eyes on the needs of the world around them, both inside and outside the church. This kind of thing that God himself did when he became flesh and dwelt among us and died on the cross. That kind of sacrificial service is that we have a real opportunity to provide a contrast to the world around us who is only in for what can get out. A few years ago, when I was pastor at University Baptist, uh, we had a, <clears throat> a growing church, an active church, a very busy church, and 
I, I became increasingly convinced, as did some others around me, that, however, that we were isolated from our world around us, out, just outside the, the walls. They were welcome to come in, but they didn't see us very often going out. And so I decided to do an experiment. We had a, a person on our staff whose wife never met a stranger. You know those people. She was a redhead and outgoing, and so we asked Donna to take a video camera. They were pretty large back then. You couldn't do it with your phone. And to go to the McDonald's, which was about a mile from our church. You could walk there if you wished. And to go there on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock and uh, just interview people that would didn't have a problem with that. So she did. She was supposed to ask them a few questions. How long have you lived in Clear Lake City? A year, five years, 10 years, they would have different answers. Uh, can you tell me where the Johnson Space Center is? It's, can you tell me where the University of Houston Clear Lake is? Can you tell me where Shipley's Donut is? Can you tell me where, and she would ask a series of questions. And the last one would be, can you tell me where University Baptist Church is? Now, we were not physically camouflaged. We had 20 acres of land with a big, tall, white steeple like you do sitting right in the middle of Clear Lake City. But when she got to that question, one person after another would go, uh, hmm, I think that may be where my kids' softball team practices out on the field. They, they did, it was 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. They were not church people or they'd be in church, right? And they didn't have a clue where we were. We were invisible as far as they concerned. We took that video back and showed it in church one Sunday, and I asked the question, you know, if Jesus lived at 16106 Middlebrook Drive for 25 years, do you think people would know where he lived? And here we are, the body of Christ. Do you think people ought to know where we are? Do you think they ought to think about us when they have a need? But we had isolated ourselves. There was no contrast to the world. They hadn't seen what I'm talking about. And that troubled us, and we began to work on that. But one of the ways that we did that was to learn to lean into service that cost us something and to begin to serve our community in ways we had not done that before. So a couple of days passed after Jared and Joe were playing catch, and Jared had released his balloon prayer to the heavens. And... Uh, Steve Shogren, who is pastor of a church in Cincinnati, shares the rest of the story. Joe and Jared were out running errands on Saturday, and Joe saw a car wash in a parking lot being sponsored, uh, and so he decided to pull in. His car certainly needed a wash, and he pulled up to the line of people with buckets and sponges and hoses and said, how much is it? And uh, it was Pastor Steve Shogren who was there, and he said, it's free, no strings attached. And Joe said, really? Why are you doing this? He said, we just want to show you God's love in a practical way. And it was that statement that kind of opened up a place in Joe's heart. And Joe said, so you're Christians? And Steve said, yes, we are. He said, are you the kind of Christians that believe in God? And he said, uh, yeah, yeah, that's the kind of Christians we are. And Joe grinned, and he stared at Jared, and then told Steve about the release of the helium balloon a couple of days ago, where the prayer had been, God, if you're real, and if you're there, would you send us someone who knows you? And uh, Joe said, I guess you guys are an answer to one of the strangest prayers God's ever received. Steve Shogren wrote a book called The Conspiracy of Kindness, 
where he talked about the process his church engaged in what he called servant evangelism, of finding ways of offering themselves in service to their community. Uh, and whether people ask or not, when they ask, the answer was Jesus. They didn't do it with strings attached, but always ready to give testimony, to stand out like stars against the darkness of the sky, humble acts of service with no strings attached. The destiny that we have, you and I, is the very real transformation of our lives, the renovation of our hearts. It's what God longs for. It's what he gave his son for. It's why he poured out the spirit. It's why he formed the church. He wanted a people who more and more resembled his son Jesus in the way they live their lives and the way they, things they value and how they talk and how they speak of others and how they speak to others and how they treat others and how they serve others. He didn't just want a bunch of nice people. He wanted people who sacrificially served in his name. And that transformation as it takes place and begins, begins to be expressed in both our lives and our words will be a testimony of contrast. It will set us apart from the world. We will be children of God, blameless and innocent, without blemish, offering the world an alternative to its anger, an alternative to its hatred, an alternative to its selfishness, an alternative to its demandingness, its greed, its lust, its quest for power. Like stars against the darkness, our lives will match the message of the gospel word for word as we hold out the word of life. Our living will make it believable. It's not a self-righteous, holier-than-thouness that God invites us to, but the very life, the very life that the broken lives in his day found attractive. That's the life of Christ in us, and that's what he calls us to. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we need constant reminders of this because the world is so profoundly with us that we find ourselves regularly, constantly joining in, camouflaged, behaving and thinking, responding just like it does. And you've called us to something else. And so thank you for the reminder that your word gives us that you have a destiny for us. You have a plan and you have a mission and you ask simply for our sacrifice our giving of our lives to you. Help us with our words this week, our relationships, our opportunities. Use us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.